Turn, if you would, tonight to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for uh, this time to assemble tonight. I pray that you'd help me as I try to bring your word to your people. I pray that it'd be a help and that, uh, God, it would be something that would remind us of what we need to be reminded of from time to time. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at chapter 9, and in doing so we looked at the first 14 verses. We did not look at all of them extensively, but what we looked at was the fact that the writer dealt with the conscience of men and women. And one of the things that he said was this, is that under the Old Testament or or under the Old Covenant, it was impossible for a person to completely have their conscience purged or cleansed. And the reason for that is because so much of the person's relationship with God depended upon their works and their actions and what they brought to the Lord. But the writer said that after the, or with the new covenant rather, uh, the, the conscience could be purged and it could be completely cleansed. And the reason for that is because now the relationship depended entirely upon the work of Christ in the person's life. And so I tried to show us last week the joy and the peace and the comfort that came to a person's life whenever they realized the relationship was not dependent upon them, but rather it was dependent upon the work of God through Christ. And last week I shared with us that there are still many people in our society today by way of the religious crowd, so many of them believe that their relationship with God is dependent upon their works. I have to do this, 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 in order to be right with God, in order to maintain my salvation. And when a person truly believes that, that leads to a miserable existence because all the pressure is on them to perform. Okay, And so the conscience can truly never be purged or cleansed if they truly believe they can lose their salvation. But you and I, if we truly believe what the Word of God teaches, then we believe that all the work by way of our relationship with Christ is dependent upon who God is and not who we are. And that gives joy if we place our confidence in that. And so many times people struggle. Have I been good enough? Have I done enough? Am I living the way that I'm supposed to? I just don't know. I just have these nagging doubts. And we have to remember that our salvation is dependent upon Christ and no one and nothing else, all right? And if we'll come to that conclusion in our heart and minds, we can have and we can enjoy some wonderful peace that Satan would love to steal from us, all right? So that's what we looked at last week. Tonight we're going to look at just a few verses, just a couple of thoughts. Before doing so, I want us to think about something. For those of us who are parents, here is what we know. From the moment our child enters into this world, the work begins. You know that, right? From the moment that baby left the womb, that is when the work begins. That is when the time begins to be invested. And that is when the dollar bills and the amounts begin 
to ring up. Would you agree? Maybe your children are different than mine, but it just seems like from the moment they were born, that's when the time and the energy and the cost began to really change its course in our lives. Now, that being said, here is what we would also admit as parents, that being this, that our kids do not understand what is required to get them from the cradle to the point they are able to get out of the house. You cannot look at your infant and say, now listen, it's going to cost about X amount of money to raise you, and mom and dad are going to have this many hours invested in you. As that child is laying in the cradle, they're just going to look at you and just whatever. Drool or do whatever the baby needs to do at that moment. The child is not going to understand what is required to do what needs to be done in that child's life. Now, if you think about this, here's what we also know. That as that child grows and as that child develops and as that child matures, they need to be confronted with what they have and what it costs for them to enjoy it. You understand this? As the child is growing and as the child is maturing, as they come to you at age 9, 10, 11 years old, whatever it may be, and they've got those tennis shoes that cost $150. That's when you have to begin explaining to them, hey, listen, we may have the money, but we don't have the money for that. Uh, maybe we could or maybe we can't do something like that, but, but you have to understand, son or daughter, uh, that that is a lot of money. Well, then they come to you and they say something like this, well, I want a cell phone. Well, I'm sure you do. I remember the first time Nathan began approaching us about wanting a cell phone. And it, again, was one of those thoughts. I'm sure you would like a cell phone. But see, those things cost money. And so you try to show them what this is costing and what is required in order, in order for you to have what you have. A couple of weeks ago, whenever we added Hannah to our insurance by way of driver's insurance, and I got the bill. First of all, I held my chest for just a moment, and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. We're paying this much every six months for these cars? And I wasn't trying to be rude. I wasn't trying to be uh, anything other than informative. I just sent the kids a note by way of a text because... I found out what it was while I was here at the church, and I sent them a text, and I said, listen, this is what it costs to insure you. I don't say that because I'm upset. I just want you to know that there is a cost associated with you getting to drive. I want them to understand this is what's being done for you. I'm not the one really benefiting from this. I'm not the one that's really gaining anything from this. In fact, I'm the one who is really, for lack of better words, I am the one who is doing all the giving and you're just getting all the getting and you're taking all the receiving and I want you to understand this. Again, I'm not trying to throw it in their face, but they've got to know. 
They have got to know that this is what is being done for you, and this is what has already been done for you. Now, if you'll think about that principle, if you'll think about that thought for just a moment, I want us to think about salvation tonight. I understand that there are times that people have been in church for many years before they are truly saved. And so that means that they have been around and they have been exposed to the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And so if you were to ask them, okay, what happened now in order for you to have salvation, they could, in a sense, give you the textbook answer that this is what happened in order for me to be saved. But for the person who did not grow up in church, for the person who was not familiar with all the right answers, if you were to ask them upon their salvation, what just happened to you, many times they would not know anything other than, I just asked the Lord to save me. They would understand, I hope, their sinful condition. I would underst- or I would hope that they would understand that Jesus Christ is the only one to save them. If true salvation took place, then they would, of course, know those things. But if you were to begin asking them, okay, give me some of the technicalities of what happened. Tell me what all has been done on your behalf so that you might have salvation. Here is what we know is that most baby Christians don't grasp what was done on their behalf to provide for them the salvation they now enjoy. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that it's right, that immediately upon their salvation, we have to try to go through everything just to show them, okay, this is what was required for your salvation But I would say this, that as a child of God grows and as a child of God matures and as that child of God develops, they need to know what was done for them so that they might have eternal life. You understand this? A child of God needs to know this is what was required for me to one moment be lost and on my way to hell to now being saved and on my way to heaven They need to know, and I would say it like this also, just as I every once in a while remind my kids of what has been done for them, you and I, who already know, need to be reminded. Because just as my kids can get very relaxed and, you know, ungrateful sometimes for what is provided for them, If we're honest, we would have to say of ourselves, there are times we know what's been provided. We know that we know what has been done, and yet we're not as grateful for it as we ought. And so tonight, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tell you right up front what's going to happen. I'm going to remind us tonight of what was required for our salvation. You may say, well, Brother Kyle, I already know this. Okay, you need the reminder. And if you've got a flippant attitude about it, you have a stronger need of a reminder than you realize. All right? In chapter 9, the first few verses, what is the writer talking about? He is writing about the new covenant. He is writing about that which is now available to them. Now, 
I want us to look in the last part of verse number 22. All right, the last part of verse number 22. You see the context of this being set up in verses 18 through 21. We're not going to deal with all that tonight. We're just going to look at the last part of verse number 22. And here is what the writer declared. He said, and without the shedding of blood or without shedding of blood is no remission. And without shedding of blood is no remission. How many of us know tonight that the Bible can be very descriptive at times and yet we don't catch it because we read through it so quickly? You ever been guilty of that? Certainly I have been guilty of such and so over the years many times I have read this over the years I have heard this statement quoted over the years I have quoted this statement myself but I've never really considered the words until this week when the writer said without shedding of blood is no remission. What does it mean for there to be remission? It means this for there to be a forgiveness or a pardon given from sin. Okay, so here's what the writer says, that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness or any kind of a pardon from sin. There would not be this idea of wiping the slate clean. There would not be this idea of eternal redemption and eternal salvation. So he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, we would say, of sin. But it does not just mean a forgiveness or a pardon from sin. I love this as well. It's the idea of being released from bondage or from prison. That's what the word carries in it by way of a definition. So it's not just forgiveness. It's not just a pardon from sin. It is this idea also being expressed that you have been released from your bondage or you have been released from prison. Now, this evening, I think you know this about myself. By the grace of God, I have never been in bondage to a, a literal physical thing. And by the grace of God, I've never been in prison. You understand, I say by the grace of God, and I'm thankful for that. I cannot personally imagine what that would feel like. I can't imagine what it would, know, what it would be to know that all of your rights and all of your privileges and all of your freedoms have been taken away from you. And yet, here is what we know, that as a sinner, we are in bondage to Satan, and we are bound to him, and we are bound by our sin, and we carry the burden of our sins with us every day. And what the writer says to the believers, or what he says to the Hebrews is this, is that because of the shedding of blood, you now have available to you remission, which means you can be forgiven, you can be pardoned, you can be released from that bondage, you can be released from that prison. Everything that you've been carrying, it can be gone. That is a wonderful truth. So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We understand tonight that then it means, or that it says, blood had to be shed. Now again, I don't know about you, but I've read this statement so many times, and I thought, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, blood has to be shed, and that's how we get remission of sin. But this word remission, or without the shedding, rather, we've already dealt with remission, the word uh, uh, shedding, it means this. For something to rush or to flow. 
for something to rush or to flow. Now remember who the writer is writing to. He's writing to fellow Jews, correct? Who are very familiar with the Old Covenant. They are very familiar with the sacrifices and the offerings being brought to the temple. And what would happen before the sacrifice took place? The sacrifice would be cut and the blood would begin to gush or to rush or to flow from the body of the animal. Now here's what the writer is saying. That when Christ shed his blood, it was not just this idea of a trickle. It was not some G-rated approach to blood coming from a person's body. He is saying in a very descriptive manner that the blood was rushing and that the blood was flowing out of the body of Christ. Think about this. Every one of us at some point have cut ourselves, have we not? The other day I was out doing some yard work. I know you're fascinated with what I'm about to tell you. But the other day I was doing some yard work and I guess I'm getting old enough now that I can cut myself and not know it. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So I'm doing the yard work and Nathan says, Dad, what happened to you? I said, I don't know, bud. What are you talking about? I looked down and I had cut my arm. I had scratched it, whatever. And blood had trickled down my arm, down onto my hand. I went inside. I washed it off. I got a napkin and I just daubed it off and it was done. End of drama. End of attention. I hated it. I wanted more. I got every mile out of it I could. But it was a trickle. Years ago, when I was a child playing football in the front yard, I don't remember how it happened. I just know that my head met the passenger side wheel of my parents' car. And my head split open and the blood gushed and the blood flowed. That gets the attention of your mama. Now, my point is this. I know in my own personal life the difference between a trickle and a gushing. You know the difference between a trickle and a gushing of your own blood, most likely because most of us have experienced something a little bit more than a trickle. What I'm trying to do tonight is remind us that when Christ shed his blood, it did not just trickle down his face when the crown of thorns was put on his head. Whenever he was put on the cross and they put the nails through his hands and his feet, the blood did not just trickle out of those places. When they beat him with the, with the whips, the, the blood did not just trickle out his back. And when they pierced his side, the blood did not just trickle. I do not think, for myself anyway, I don't think that I can truly comprehend how gory and nasty and repulsive it would have been to look upon Christ in the midst of all this. It was rushing and pouring and flowing from his body.
We need to remember that our salvation was a gory transaction that required great pain and great suffering on the part of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say more about this in just a couple of moments, but we cannot afford to know that and then have a casual attitude about what has been done for us by way of our salvation. We need to be reminded of what has been done so that we can understand the severity of it, so that we can understand the significance of it, and so that we might have a better appreciation of it. So the blood had to be shed according to the writer, but go back to verse number 15. In verse number 15, he said this, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. We should know by now what he's talking about whenever he refers to him as the mediator. But he says he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, what did the writer just convey in verse number 15? He conveyed this, that in order for redemption to take place, not only did blood have to be shed, but death had to take place. It had to take place. See, here's what we know. We know that a person can get cut. We know that a person can bleed and bleed terribly, but they don't die. Many of us are living testimonies of that truth. And so it was not just enough for Christ to come and to shed his blood on behalf of men and women and their sins. The writer wants to remind them and he wants to show them that death was required by Christ or of Christ by God in order for salvation to take place. Notice in verse number 16 what he said. He said, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. What does that mean? It means this. The word testament in verse number 16 is very similar to what you and I would get our word will from. Our, our will. Now here's the thing about a will. It is only effective upon a person's death. You understand this? I have a will in place. That if I were to pass away, this is what's supposed to happen with the money, what's supposed to happen with the house, and any other assets we have. All of that is set in place, but here's the thing. None of that has any force or power or authority attached to it until I die. Until I die, it's just paper with some ink on it. Now what is he saying? He is saying this, 
that by means of death for the redemption of transgressions. But he said, for where there is a testament or for where there is a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator or the one who is the giver of the will. And so the writer is simply reminding the people, listen, it's not just that blood had to be shed for the remission of people's sin, but the one who wrote the will or the covenant, so to speak, it was needed that he die. Because without the death, there was no force or authority to what was being said. You understand what was required? The shedding of the blood and the death of Jesus Christ for salvation, for redemption. It was not just a trickle of blood. It was not just an injury here that created a little bit of bleeding. No, this was something that was producing the rushing and the, and the pouring out of the blood of Jesus Christ that would eventually lead to his death. And I want us to think about how awful it was tonight. I want us to think about how terrible it was. It was so terrible and so awful in nature that the human side of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed and said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine will, or thy will be done. Friends, if there was not intensity to this, if there was not pain and anguish and agony associated with all this, friends, if this was not a major event and moment in the life of Christ, Christ would not have found himself in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for the cup to pass while sweating drops of blood himself wishing it would pass you and I don't understand that kind of intensity by way of stress to be at a point where our bodies have have done what the body of Christ did to sweat drops of blood it's actually physically possible, doctors will tell you, that is the kind of stress and the pressure that Christ was under, that the human side of Christ experienced. And if we're not careful, you know what happens in our spiritual lives? We get so used to it that we no longer appreciate it. I don't know about you, say that because I don't want to accuse everyone of something that maybe I'm just guilty of. But I know that for myself, and I was reminded of it this week, I know for myself that something I am so often guilty of is this. Being able to talk about my forgiveness, but not really appreciating what was required for me to have it. And so we can sing a song on a Sunday night like, Praise God, My Sins Are Gone. And it's a good song. There's nothing wrong with the song in and of itself. 
But I wonder how many of us stopped to think tonight what was required for us to be able to sing a glad, happy, upbeat song about my sins are gone. Jesus Christ, He was beaten, He was abused, His body was broken, the blood poured out, and He eventually had to say it is finished and breathe His last breath and give up the ghost and die. Every bit of that had to happen so that we can merrily go along our way saying, Praise God, my sins are gone. And not even think about the weight of what we've been singing. Well, you think about that and then you think, for myself anyway, how many times do we go to the Lord and we say something like this? Father, please forgive me. You know, I said something I shouldn't have done. Father, please forgive me. I, man, Lord, I messed up. God, please forgive me. Do you ever, if you're honest, have moments where you just casually, somewhat again flippantly, just say, Lord, forgive me? And not realize what was required for us to be able to say that? For me to have the forgiveness... For my salvation, Lord, you had to bleed and you had to bleed terribly and you had to be broken and you had to die. And Lord, so many times what you have done, I've shown no appreciation for it and I've shown no seriousness about it. And so many times I've been like that immature child who is confronted with it and yet I don't process it to really take it in. God, this is what was required for me to be saved and for me to have a right relationship with you. I know that tonight I cannot make anyone think any more than they want to think. So if you want to sit here tonight and say, yeah, Brother Kyle, we got this one. Yeah, Brother Kyle, I know this one. You can do that. But I think for our own personal spiritual development... We would do ourselves a good thing if we would stop for a moment tonight and remember there was this day and there was this moment that I was a sinner on my way to an eternal hell. One heartbeat separated us from an eternal damnation in hell. But somewhere along the way, we were confronted with the truth of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And all we had to do was call upon the name of the Lord, and He was willing to save us. And it would do us good tonight if we remembered the reason that... All we had to do was call upon the name of the Lord is because He was willing to shed His blood and because He was willing to die on our behalf. Now, if you don't need that reminder, I'm sorry I wasted your time tonight. But I think most of us could afford the reminder.
we need to be reminded that the reason we do not have the same eternal destination as most folks around us is because of the saving grace of Christ that came to us because he bled and because he died, and that is not anything to take lightly. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. Lord, I know that I need the reminder. I can't, I, I can't begin to know how many times I have taken lightly what you have done for me. Lord, I hate to think the number of times in the future I will get so distracted and I will get so busy with whatever it is I'm doing that I will once again take it lightly. But to what extent you can, I pray that you'd help me tonight, and I pray that you'd help each one who needs this tonight to be reminded that in order to be saved, in order to have our sins pardoned and forgiven and to be set free from that bondage in prison, I pray that you'd help us tonight to be reminded that you had to die a horrible, awful death and that your blood had to be shed in a terrible, gruesome way and that you'd help us to be thankful for that and grateful maybe in a way that we haven't been in a long time. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.